over the last couple of weeks, we've been in a book in the New Testament called Second uh, Peter. It's Peter's second letter uh, to a group of churches. We're not sure exactly which church he was sending the letter to. It's, we assume that it was more like mass communication, like that text message you maybe get on, on New Year's Eve that says, uh, you know, just thinking of you before the networks go crazy. Uh, we want you and your whole family to know uh, that we're thinking of you. You have a great uh, 2020, you know, send to all. And you don't really feel that touched or, you know, that someone was thinking of you. It's just gone like scattergun effect to everyone. And we think that Second Peter is kind of like that message. It's an open letter. Um, and Peter is writing to remind people of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that he keeps his word. If he says he's going to do something, he will do it because the church has become a little impatient and other people have crept in, these false teachers have crept in and said, Jesus is not coming back, live as you please. So that's the context and we're right at the end of the letter tonight, Second Peter chapter three, verses 14 to 18. This is God's word. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, i.e. the return of Christ, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother, also Paul, also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. And when we end there, giving thanks to God for his word, how it still speaks to us today. Just give me a second. Is there anything more exciting than getting that notification to your phone to tell you that your Amazon delivery is only four stops away? I love to get that notification. And it's really good now the way that you can actually see on the map where exactly the delivery driver is and how close he is to your house, what four steps actually looks like. And you maybe begin to wonder, I wonder what my neighbors are getting. Um, because you can see the little dot just around the corner and you know that the Amazon delivery man is not that far away. The impact of, of having that notification might mean that you just stay in your home, uh, kind of like a little puppy dog waiting at the window to see, will he arrive soon? Will you be excited? Or maybe you play it cool and you're like, oh yeah, all right. And you just open the door and take your parcel. Depending on what it is that's being delivered, it might be something really boring like a whisk um, or, or some, it might be something really exciting you spent a lot of money on and, and you're really waiting for it to arrive. But you'd like to get that information because it reminds you, you need to wait you need to stay present in your home if you're expecting this thing to be delivered. Or maybe you're one of those really unfortunate people that has ordered white goods from somewhere like Curry's or Argos or something like that. And the, they've told you that the product will be delivered on Wednesday between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. and you need to like stay in your house 
uh, for that whole time because they're giving you this big wide window of time that the product might be delivered and then you're like under house arrest by order of Argos or something like that, I don't know. You feel like, well, I'm locked in position and, and waiting, we typically think waiting is, is a negative thing. In our culture and in our world, we hate to wait. It frustrates the life out of us. I had to phone Virgin Media a couple of weeks ago about our TV package and I phoned them and I got through after waiting for about 17 minutes to get speaking to an actual human being and she asked me for my password. Of course I couldn't remember my password, never remember my password. So I said, I'm sorry, I can't remember my password. And she said to me, it's okay, sir. We'll post it out to you and it should be with you in five working days. <laughs> I mean, like, are you kidding me? It's 2020, can you not send me a code? Is there no other way to authenticate my account? I'm sorry, sir, that's what we're doing. I think they will probably use that conversation to train other operatives on how to deal with difficult customers because I was not very happy about the wait that I had. We don't wait well. We, we think of waiting as a negative thing. We are unhappy when we need to wait. And in this letter that Peter writes to the church, he's encouraging them to wait for the return of Jesus Christ. He's encouraging them to be patient, to believe God and to hope in him. And the instructions that he gives are really, really clear, really obvious. George Matheson writes about patience and he says this, there is a patience that I believe is harder than lying down. The patience that can run. It's the power to work under stress, to continue under hardship, to have anguish in your spirit and still perform daily tasks. This is a Christian thing. The hardest thing is that most of us are called to exercise patience, not in the sick bed, but in the street. Peter's second letter could easily be entitled Patience in the Street. It's about being patient in the stuff of life, in everyday, ordinary life, how to be patient, how to wait when you're under pressure. His letter is full of instruction, direction, guidance, orders, if you like, are in this letter because Peter wants us to wait well. He doesn't want us to sit around with our legs crossed and you know just waiting for it all to be over. He wants us to make the most of every opportunity. He wants us to live a good life and to, to get the most out of life. And so he says, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, i.e. the return of Christ and the renewal of the earth, he says, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Remember, false teachers had been undermining the position of the church that Peter was writing to. False teachers had slipped in and said, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be knowledgeable, just give us your money and we can tell you some really insightful things. We can share our wisdom with you. Jesus isn't really coming back, so there's no point in exercising restraint in how you live. There's no point in having a, a moral, upright life. There's no point in obedience. There's no point in sacrifice. There's no point in gathering together for worship on Sunday. There's, there's no point in honoring God's design for human relationships. There's no point in any of these things. Just live as you please. Eat, drink, and be merry. But if you would like to know spiritual things, give us your money. The notion was circulating that Jesus would not come back in judgment. 
Obedience was foolish. Sacrifice was foolish. Discipline was pointless. And actually, Christian people were missing out on real life and they should just go and live it like everybody else. Why commit to sexual purity? Why refrain from gossip? Why, why not just put your hand in the till and take what's not yours? Why not? Jesus isn't coming back. You can live as you please. What's the big deal if you bend the truth about your situation? And is there any purpose really in gathering as the people of God and using your time to worship? Can I get revenge on my enemies instead of forgiving them? These kinds of questions were circulating in the church back then, but they're still relevant today because you and I still wonder what's the point in obedience? It seems like the disobedient people get rewarded. It seems like those who do not trust Jesus have good lives. What is the point? Is there a purpose in obedience? It's not just a first century church problem. It's a 21st century church problem. We live in the now reality of this world, hearing the promise of God that is not yet available to us, not yet breaking into the time that we're living in. We, we need patience that works on the street or in the street, not just on the sick bed, although we need patience on the sick bed too. And Peter urges the church to make every effort to give themselves fully to the purposes of God, to be found by Jesus as spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. And as I read these verses this week, I have to admit, I didn't initially get my head around them straight away. I found it difficult to work out what it would look like for me to make an effort to have peace with God. What would it look like for me to make an effort to be blameless or spotless? Because my understanding of the Bible is that in order to, be, to have peace with God, Jesus went to the cross in my place and took my sin. He bore my sin on the cross so that I could have peace with God. In order for me to be blameless, Jesus took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. That's my understanding. And so in a previous generation, the church would sing things like, weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. That, that actually we cannot have peace with God by our efforts. We cannot be blameless by our efforts. We, we cannot be spotless by trying harder, working harder, and, and doing this all ourselves. So as I'm reading in the passage, Peter's saying, make every effort. I, I didn't initially get my head around it. I found it difficult. And here in Carmoney and uh, in the church, typically we're singing things like, dressed in his, dressed in Christ's righteousness alone, I faultless stand before the throne, that the only ability that I can have to be faultless before God comes from the perfection of Jesus Christ, not my perfection, and that's why I love Jesus. That's why I trust him, because he is faultless and I'm standing in him. He is my substitute. He has taken my place. And the only hope that I have of being faultless or blameless or having peace with God is because Jesus achieved it on my behalf. And yet Peter says, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. It looks like I've got to do something. According to this passage, it looks like I need to contribute to this in some way. And I'm reminded of a verse or a, a quote from Jonathan Edwards, not the, not the sprinter, but uh, an American reformer who said, you contribute nothing to your salvation 
accept the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I, I can't rescue myself. I can't save myself. I can't redeem myself by my own effort. And so th- these two things were kind of jarring in my head as I'm reading Second Peter and thinking, what does it look like to make an effort to be blameless with God when it's only possible to be blameless with God through something Jesus does for me? I had to go to another verse to help me get my head around this. And the other verse was in Philippians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the New Testament church. And in Philippians chapter two, he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And I'm thinking, right, so Peter says, make every effort to be blameless. And Paul is now saying, work out your salvation. And so I'm, I'm thinking, is, is Paul backing Peter up? Is Peter backing Paul up saying, we, we do now have to work for our salvation? I thought this was all grace. I thought it was all mercy. I thought it was, you know, in Christ alone my hope is found. And now it seems as though I've got to do something. It initially seems problematic to think about working out your salvation until if you think about what happens when someone actually in our day and age goes for a workout. When somebody works out, they go to a gym with the body that they already have, that they did not bring into existence, that they did not cause uh, to, uh, to come about. And the body that all of us gets is brought into the world as a result of the decision of someone else. We cannot take the credit for it. We didn't lift a finger to bring our own existence about. We get a body and when you work it out, you develop what has already come to you as a gift. And here Peter is saying to the church that they should make every effort to develop the gift of life in Christ that they have been given. The the blamelessness that is theirs by decree or by speech from God, the the blamelessness that is offered to them through a relationship with Jesus Christ, they, they should now live in their new identity. Accept the name that you've been given and live up to it is what Peter's saying. Work out, says Paul, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. So you work it out and God works it in. And, and, and what we think about in terms of discipleship or sanctification is us taking hold of everything that Christ has given us. Becoming like Jesus is something that happens in relationship. Discipleship is something that happens in relationship with God through the work of the Holy Spirit. God works in us as we work out our salvation. He blesses our obedience. He blesses it. I read this week in a book called Devoted, these words, if God has committed himself to changing our lives, to sanctifying us, then wisdom, not to mention gratitude, dictates that we should become committed to that too. Otherwise, otherwise God's will and my will are in competition with each other. Can you identify or think about the ways in which you are making an effort to become like Jesus? Can you put your finger on the things that you are doing as a habit or as a routine to become holy? 
to live up to the identity that you have been assigned as a result of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Are you becoming the person God has called you to be? Is Sunday worship a priority or do you come here if it fits in with everything else that you've got in your schedule? Is time in God's word an important habit and routine in your week or is it something that happens if you find the time once you get your favorite box set or TV program watched? Is, is giving your money and your talent to the uh, purposes of God something that you do at the beginning of the month, something that you set aside, or is it let's see what we've got left over and I'll be able to give if it's possible? Is your life at the disposal of God or, or is it up to you to decide and determine where your money goes, where your time goes, where your life goes? In that same book called Devoted, Sinclair Ferguson says, you may see a reserved sign on a table in a restaurant. Even if there are no other tables free in the restaurant, you may not sit at the table marked reserved. It's being kept for someone else, no matter how frustrating that is for you. This is what sanctification means. God has put a reserved, his reserved sign on us. He marks us out for his personal possession and use. We belong to him and to nobody else, not even to ourselves. He determines why we exist. He determines what our lives should be about. And, and we should be yielding, submitting and surrendering to his purposes for our lives. Do you, do you have any sense do you have any sense why God has brought you into this world? Is there any clarity around what contribution you might make in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, in this church? What has he put in you to cause the kingdom of God to grow and develop? What are your appetites and desires? How is he transforming them so that your desires are aligned with his desires? Do you have any sense why God has set his reserved sign on you? And are you giving your time to those things? One of the ways that I've been really helped to know what God's purpose is for my life is through reading scripture. And so I advise you and encourage you to set time aside. Yes, sometimes it's really, I find it really boring. If I'm honest, I can read a passage and it doesn't mean anything to me. I can read stuff and as, as Peter says there, it's hard to understand. And yet there are other times and, and it just leaps off the page and my heart burns because it's like God is speaking directly into my life. I've got some UCB Bible reading notes with me tonight. If you want some notes to get you back into the habit of, of reading God's word, I've got them with me. I've got a few study guides for Second Peter that the discipleship communities are gonna be looking at and working through as well. If you wanna grab those afterwards, come and speak to me and I'll get those to you before you, you leave this evening. But I encourage you to be in God's word, hear him speak to you and allow him to shape and mold your life along the lines that he has designed. This letter is packed with instruction about how we should live. For your good, for God's glory, and for the benefit of society as a whole, God has a purpose and a plan for your life. He set a reserved sign on you if you are a Christian, and he has a, a design about how you and I should live. It's full of instruction in the letter, but more than that, there's inspiration too. It's not just a to-do list you'll be glad to hear. Second, Peter motivates us 
compels us to live for Jesus and gives us really good reasons as to why we should surrender our lives. He explains why we should give ourselves over to the purposes of God rather than just following our own desires and will. Peter says, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. The motive, the inspiration to obey is that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're in a secure position. You are secure in Jesus Christ. There is a security in him that is not available anywhere else. More secure than your job title. More secure than your health. More secure than your marriage. More secure than your finances. More secure than popular opinion. All of these things can change. And Peter wants the church to know that through a relationship with Jesus Christ, their identity does not shift or move. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So their identity, so their position and standing before God will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. Their position is secure, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what the scan reveals, no matter what your company director uh, projects about the future and says, if these sales don't change, I don't know if we can still offer you a position. No matter how you think your human relationships are maybe progressing or regressing and you're thinking, I wonder what's happening in this relationship. Is this friendship going to be around forever? Is this marriage going to last? How am I getting on with my parents? How am I getting on with my children? Will I see my grandchildren? All of these things fluctuate. But Peter says to the church, you have a secure position because Jesus Christ is the same. He remains the same And you have a secure position through a relationship with him. And that is the motive for obedience. It's a constant theme through the letter. Do you remember how he began way back a couple of weeks ago as we began in chapter one? Peter says to this vulnerable, fragile little church, he says, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained the faith of equal standing with ours and by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, you're... Your faith is on an equal standing with the apostles. You don't need the additional top-ups or add-ons from the false teachers. You've got a standing that is equal with the apostles. And then later on in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You, you will remain the same. Verse 12 says that Peter wants us to be established in the faith. Over and over again, we're reminded of the stability of a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, men spoke from God, speaking about how scripture came to us, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, which means that there was a purpose, there was a direction, there was a design. The Holy Spirit carried these men along to bring God's word to the church. And yet he says in this passage that what the false teachers want to do is not carry us along in purpose, but carry us away. He says, be careful that you will not be carried away by error and lawlessness. Yes, there are things that are hard to understand in Paul's letters, Peter says. Paul's writings, the scriptures, 
that Paul has written. His letters are hard to understand. And he says, notice this. Some people twist them or torture them or distort them to lead you astray. So even when the scripture is hard to understand, there is a right interpretation of it. It's not just, hey, think whatever you like. Come to whatever conclusion you please. Peter says, some things are hard to understand. And people take advantage of the fact that they're hard to understand and distort the truth, torture the truth, twist the truth to lead you astray. Just because it's hard to understand doesn't mean that there is a proper or correct interpretation of it. This week I was running at uh, Woodburn Dams. It's something that I like to do in my spare time up around Woodburn Forest and around the reservoir up there. As you know, the weather hasn't been that great this week. So uh, there was lots of muck and mud and water kind of flowing on the trail paths. And I, I love all that. It's great, really good. But part of the problem is when it's, when it's mucky and wet like that, then underfoot it's kind of slippy. And usually if I've come in from a trail run, I need to just like take my shoes off and leave them outside and uh, I'll hose them down or something later on. But uh, this week when I came in from my trail run, uh, down the side of my uh, legs were completely covered in mud. My elbow and my whole arm was covered in mud because I completely fell, wiped out in the muck. I was, um, I think it's uh, called, you know, when, when you're driving, if you're ever doing those um, go-karting things and you get a flag because you're driving beyond your capability. I think I was running beyond my capability uh, this week. I think that's definitely what I was doing. I had a, a more um, confident kind of assessment in my mind of what I was able to do in those conditions and totally wiped out. The ground beneath my feet was not sturdy or stable. It was slipping and moving. In my f- I was like Bambi on ice when I was running because it was just going everywhere because there was, there was nothing secure or stable beneath me. It was really slippery. It was flooded and muddy and I was putting my foot on something that was shifting all the time. And if you think about the Apostle Peter, you know anything about him, his own life was testimony to the faithfulness of God in a time when he was really fickle, when his feet were slipping all over the place. Because he said, he was kind of like the superman of the disciples and saying, though none go with me, I'll follow you, Jesus, even to death. See these guys here, they might follow you, but I will. I'm really mega committed to you, Jesus. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. And Peter's like, no way. I, I, won't, I won't deny you. They might, but I, I'm not going to deny you. I will never fall away. But what happened? Peter denied Jesus three times. And the third time that he denied Jesus, denied knowing him, he was intimidated by the really scary presence of a young servant girl in the high priest's courtyard. He buckled under pressure. On the same night that this happened, Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And he charged him to strengthen the brothers. And we see in this letter that Peter writes to strengthen the church, to encourage the church. We see that even when Peter slips, Jesus is steadfast. His word proves true even when our word is revealed as false. And so in worship, we sing, great is thy faithfulness, not great is my faithfulness. We believe in a God who is faithful to us even when we are fickle, even when we fall. That's the inspiration to obey him because we always know what kind of reaction we get even when we sin, even when we mess up, even when we fall. We can turn to Jesus and know his reaction 
He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I find deep peace in that. That I know the kind of reaction that I get. when The times when I mess up and most feel like running away from God are the times when I most need to turn to him because I'll get a welcome. I'll get mercy. I'll get forgiveness. As I doubt my own judgment about things, I can have confidence in his judgment. His assessment of my life is way more accurate than my own assessment of my life. And Peter discovers that. I find courage in the fact that Jesus knows me better than I know myself. You should find courage in that. And it should motivate you and inspire you to obey him even when you think, I don't want to do this. It would make more sense to do it my way. It would be more pleasing to me to do it my way. And we all feel like that at times. To know that Jesus' assessment is more thorough, more accurate, and better. And we should yield to him even when we think we know best. His assessment of you, his verdict on your life. His perception of your life is what matters most, not the comments of other people, not your own verdict, not your own assessment. Peter was so cocky and arrogant and thought he knew best, and he buckled under the pressure. But he had a secure position because Jesus doesn't change. Jesus remains the same. The secure position of the Christian life is not traced to our own boasting and bravado not traced to our own understanding. The secure position of the Christian life is not found in us at all. It is found in Christ. That's how we are secure because Christ remains the same. You'll know uh, this face of the American cyclist and drug cheat cancer survivor, Lance Armstrong, seven-time Tour de France winner, except he's had them all stripped from him because of his uh, drug use. In a really early book that he wrote about his life called It's Not About the Bike, he writes of his early success, he writes of his discipline as an athlete, and he writes about surviving cancer. And in the book, he talks about what it's like to face death, what it's like to know that one day this disease will take his life, when his life was in danger. And this is where his confidence lay at the time. This is what he said. Quite simply, I believed I had a responsibility to be a good person. And that meant fair, honest, hardworking, and honorable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or to some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, then I believed I should be enough. At the end of the day, if there was indeed some body or presence standing there to judge me, I hope I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life, not on whether I'd believed in a certain book or whether I'd been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian, so you're going the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply, you know what? You're right. Fine. Nobody will get the last word on God. Even an unbeliever like Lance Armstrong realizes that if God says something, we all have to reckon with it. 
we all have to deal with it. We all have to accept it and acknowledge it. We do not answer back to him. We do not correct him. We do not point out some exception that he has overlooked. He sees it all. I wonder if we were to talk to Lance Armstrong now, is he still hoping that God will accept his life even though he was a cheat? Even though he didn't live a true life, even though he was a liar, what's he hoping in now? Where is your confidence? Where is my confidence? Serving the community? Being true to our family? Attending church? Where is our confidence? Where is your secure position? Where is my secure position? Because you see, when you initially read this in Lance Armstrong's autobiography, you seem, well, that's, that's, you've got quite a good case there, Lance. You're, that's a good, strong thing. If I, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, gave back to my community. If I was honest, hardworking, if I was a good person, you think, yeah, of course, sure, God's going to accept that. No, he's made it clear in his word that the only secure standing is to surrender your life completely to Christ. Every other ground is unsecure. You want to be secure tonight? You want to be in a secure position? You need to be in Christ. The Bible says, if anyone, anyone who has Christ has life, Anyone who has the Son has life. Anyone who does not have the Son does not have life. The only secure position is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the inspiration to live for him, to love him, to trust him, and to obey the instructions that he gives in his word. You are secure in him. He's got a hold of you. His verdict on your life and on his creation is not up for debate and it's not open to challenge. Those who trust in him are in a secure position. You can wait with confidence. You can wait with courage even when the pressure's on. Even when it seems as though the Amazon delivery driver is miles away. Even though it seems like it's eight o'clock in the morning and the delivery's not coming until 6 p.m. and you think, I don't know if I can endure I don't know if I can deal with this illness until Christ returns. I don't know if I can deal with this marriage until Christ returns. I don't know if I can work in this job until Christ returns. And he might not ask you to deal with all those things. Whatever it is that you're dealing with right now, God has given you patience for the street. Patience to endure. You're in a secure position. You can wait with confidence and courage for the return of Jesus Christ. Because back in chapter one, Peter tells us his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. As you wait, as you wait, make every effort to be found blameless, faultless, spotless, and at peace with him. Don't neglect the purposes of God. Surrender completely to them. I'm gonna take a moment just to pray for us and ask that God will be with us and equip us to trust him right before we have some time of worship together. So let's just take a moment to pray. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bless you for your word, for the simplicity of it, for the straightforward nature of Second Peter, for his straight talking to us. We thank you, Lord God, that you encourage us to wait well in these days. 
We thank you that there is motivation to trust you even when we feel vulnerable and fragile, even when we're so conscious of our weakness. We thank you that through a relationship with Jesus Christ, the hope that is available to us is hope of being blameless one day, hope of being spotless. We thank you that that is the identity that you declare over us right now. And we pray you would give us courage to lean in, to obey you, even when people mock us, even when people scoff. Help us to have confidence in your faithfulness, to worship you because great is thy faithfulness. Even though my faithfulness is not great, yours is. May that be our boast. May that be our hope. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.